And good morning. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And thank you, Declan and Christy, for Irish Voice this morning. And as we were promising, we're going to have a bit of a heads up on the little lander thing that's gone all the way out to the Comet Filet. And what an amazing mission that is. But first, just a quick news item because uh, we get... uh, Press releases here at Fuzzy Logic, and this one is from the Science Media Centre, and they've titled it beautifully with this "yee" uh, headline, and it says, "A snog transfers 80 million bacteria." Uh, Dutch researchers say that a 10-second snog transfers as many as 80 million bacteria between kisses, and that partners who kiss at least nine times a day share similar communities of oral bacteria. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think we won't go into too much detail on that one uh, because we are a family-friendly show here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, Joining me in the studio is uh, Ian. And, Ian, we've been looking at the little lander that's gone out to the comet there. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, Can you imagine doing a project where there are billions of dollars involved it takes 10 years and you get one shot at it and there's that final moment where you go, is this going to work or not? It's pretty It's pretty cool. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Like It's crazy to think that a small rock that could tip over this spaceship $1.5 billion down the drain or anything else that could possibly go wrong, um, you know, like at the moment. It's it's in the it's under a cliff, so the solar powered battery has run out of power, and they've got to wait for the sun to reposition itself, so the power the battery will come back to power, and they can get more information out of it. So it's it's a pretty impressive story, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this whole thing that is Philae and the Rosetta mission very shortly. Well, let's let, let's talk about it now. In fact, but I, I was wondering because I've been hearing in the news that they uh, the thing didn't land in the sunlight and apparently it didn't actually land where they wanted it to. And In fact, last I heard, they couldn't find exactly where it was located on the asteroid, on the comet, sorry. Uh, but the thing bounced a couple of times before it settled down, so it didn't actually settle where they expected it to. Yeah, I've heard that too. So I believe it, it bounced when it landed, and they had a few issues with um, being able to, to reactivate it and get its messages back. I believe it was seven hours that they had to wait and even see if they are, if that, this thing worked. Um, so, yeah, like we were saying, 10 years, $1.5 billion, and they were sitting there and waiting for seven hours for this rocket to, or space, what, what we call a, a shuttle, to, to um, give them some information back. That, that, it, it is an amazing thing, and, and I still haven't lost that excitement of seeing these little things that they set up. So once once they launched it from the, the little probe thing from the mothership, they, they couldn't steer it. It was basically just fire it like a bullet, uh, and it and it was yeah, it just go and, and hope for the best. Yeah, I believe they turned off the power fairly quickly once it got into um, outer space and they just let it go. Um, I believe the comet, which is called P62, not sure what that stands for, is somewhere between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, So, yeah, it took this spaceship um, 10 years to get there. Uh, It was funny, some facts that I was reading about 10 years ago. So March 2nd, 2014, when this spaceship left Earth 
iPhones didn't exist. Oh my God, what would we do without our iPhones now? Twitter didn't exist, so I wouldn't have been able to even access half of this information. <laughs> Did you know that the Philae 2014 Twitter account now has over 350,000 followers? That's <laughs> wow. pretty impressive. So that's um, that Twitter handle is at Philae, P-H-I-L-A-E, 2014, and it's telling you all about... Um, what Phil is doing. Um, I guess someone from Earth is, is running that Twitter account. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens now that the batteries died, whether that Twitter account <laughs> stops working and they pretend, oh, sorry, you know, we can't access the information oh, anymore. They're, they're, they're sort of pretending that the craft itself is, tweet, is tweeting. Is that what they're doing? <laughs> That's what they're trying to make it look like. It's quite funny. If you go to that Twitter account and you can have a read of some of the tweets, like we've just landed on that P62 comment. I'm pretty sure it's a legitimate twitter account it's not just someone like you know someone started it randomly it's actually run by the uh, european space agency so but it, it is an interesting observation though how the technology has changed over time uh, and uh, if you look at the computing power that was used on the apollo missions right, so when the, those moon landers were going on those things were basically mainframe computers which uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term it's like a big clunky thing that required a whole room and refrigeration and so on and you'd have more power on you in your digital watch now than you mm. in, your, in your telephone than you would have then yep and the thing you know when uh, they were coming to land the eagle on the in the 1969 that the thing was overloaded there were too many inputs coming in so they had to shut one of them down uh this was the computing power so the part of the landing itself was done manually because neil armstrong had to figure it out that he obviously had had practice mm. but like you say with uh the the rosetta mission is it so is fillet or rosetta rosetta yeah the- so no i looked into this as well it's called the rosetta mission so that's the the 10-year mission that has just finished um the spaceship is called fillet so that's p-h-i-l-a-e and the comet is called P67. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of different wordings in there. But this, um, this spaceship has been through some asteroid belts. Um, you know, like I said, it's past Mars. It's somewhere in between Mars and Jupiter. It's, it's been doing lots of other things during its 10-year period rather than just set off. It's only got one job to achieve, to achieve which is land on a comet. Um, it's actually been, been doing quite a bit. But I thought... You know, something that would be really interesting to talk about is, well, what's the point? Why are we spending $1.5 billion to send a spaceship to a comet? What can a comet tell us that the moon can't, that Mars can't, that Jupiter can't? So I looked into this, and it actually turns out that that comets can tell us quite a lot. Um, In fact, it's even believed that comets might be the basis of forming planets. They're actually... Scientists refer to them as a, a dirty snowball. They are an icy big rock, and a, they a dirty snowball or a snowy dirt ball. I think is the, other, <laughs> is the variation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they contain um, H2O, which is water. They contain lots of gas particles, um, and obviously they contain minerals as well. So um, and lots of dust. Um, So, yeah, they originate in the outer solar system and they start moving towards the sun. And as they move towards the sun, they start to break up. 
um, and that's where when you kind of look at pictures of a, of a comet they have that tail mm. and that's actually because they're moving they're, they're sort of breaking up as they go and they're releasing gas um, that, that that tail by the way I you know l- intuitively you'd imagine it just sort of follows the comet but actually it points away from the sun mm. because it's the sun that's pushing the tail not the motion of yeah, the comet yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's actually, um, it turns out that this comet can tell us quite a lot, um, and they're actually collecting some of the particles from this comet, and hopefully when um, the sun positions itself correctly again, they can get Pillay, uh, Philae, I should say, back to Earth. Um, but just recently I've heard in the media that they just managed to get enough data out of Philae to call the mission a success. So they're now sort of analysing the data that's been sent back to Earth. Apparently it's a couple of years' worth of data that they now have to analyse and and we'll be able to see what this col- comet can tell us. Wow. Well, the, the, the news I picked up this morning was they think that when it goes past the starting in August, that it'll be back in sunlight again. And so they're hoping that it'll wake up and they'll get a bit more out of it. Mm, exactly, yep. But this poor little spacecraft, when it gets too close to the sun, it's going to get fried. Yeah, well, that's eventually a comet's life as well, isn't it? The comets will just break up and so will the spaceship. But um, it's done its job, I suppose. It's given us the information and $1.5 billion well spent, do you think? Oh, look, we, you know, we, we would spend $1.5 billion on some fruitless foreign escapade without even batting an eyelid so this stuff will advance humanity you know for the indefinite future so Mm. um and i believe one of the things it's got on it is this kind of like a seismic device because like you you were saying that it's a uh, a dirty snowball or a snowy dirt ball (laughs) uh does it have a rocky core or is it just a big lot of puff Mm. because the the surface is really soft isn't it on the the way the thing actually hit and and it was supposed to deploy this little harpoon, but it didn't decelerate enough, so the harpoon never fired. Yeah, it supposedly bounced a couple of times before it landed. And could you imagine the scientists actually freaking out when they knew that would have happened? Like, imagine if it just landed on its side and broke or hit a rock or something like that. Like, all those little things that could go wrong when this spaceship was landing. And like I said, seven hours with not knowing if this spaceship's going to transmit any information back to them. That would be such a scary feeling after 10 years of, of hard, hard work. It's a huge achievement, isn't it, when you think about this tiny little lump of something rather travelling at vast velocity out there a long, long way away. And they've got to fire this thing from Earth and it's got to hunt it down, track it, catch up with it and deploy somehow there's a lot of moving parts in this aren't there little arms and things little umbrellas or whatever they are have Mm. to open unfold at just the right moment the power's got to work all the computer capacity exactly yeah well i mean obviously we could talk about it for a fair bit um but if you are interested in learning more they do have a website which is dlr.de slash en slash rosetta and we'll put the link and up we'll put the link up on our fuzzy logic facebook page and that's actually got some really cool pictures it tells you all about the rosetta mission it tells you about um what they're trying to achieve through this mission and and what a comet can actually tell us and it's where i got pr- most of the information for today's segment on this on this comet uh now next time by the way i get 
Dr. Charlie Lineweaver on, who's a, uh, one of my favourite uh, friends and guests on Fuzzy Logic. He's an astrobiologist and a really big thinker. And I'm going to ask him uh, about the idea of so-called panspermia, that uh, the precursors of life were seeded onto Earth from comets. And the whole idea of there being a, uh, a such a field of science called astrobiology is is, is quite mind blowing. Mm. Uh, but he, he's uh, he's lots of fun, and uh, I think we might break to a track. Uh, how about I think our little lander has got a bit of fame, so how about a bit of fame from David Bowie? Oh, fame! Oh, the famous little Rosetta lander, the little fellow spaceship thing that's. Just gone up to the comet there in outer space. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. And don't forget, we have our radiothon on at the moment. If you like shows like Fuzzy Logic and our friends on Irish Voice earlier this morning, please log on to the XX website and uh, make a donation. Subscribe, become a member. Uh, we love you because, well, if you love us, and now, now out at the uh, Nicta Labs, not long ago, I visited and went to a really fascinating talk about the bionic eye. And what an amazing thing it is. It's a collaboration of lots of researchers in Australia and around the world. And so here now is uh, uh, Professor Nick Barnes. All right, well, I'd like you to imagine a world where you can't see. And it's hard for those of us with good eyes to imagine exactly what that would be like but if you walk around a room and close your eyes I think it'd be pretty hard to navigate the world without the ability to see. Now there are people in Australia who are researching how to bring a vision to people who otherwise wouldn't have it and I'm interviewing now Associate Professor Nick Barnes who's from NICTA and Bionic Vision Australia and Nick you've been talking tonight about the bionic eye what are the main challenges that you face in d that sort of device? Okay, so for us, the challenges that we're addressing in terms of vision processing are bionic vision, um, prosthetic vision as it stands, has a reduced um, visual resolution compared with what you see in normal vision and a reduced ability to see contrast in an image. Um, and so we're trying to develop vision processing, so um, computer processing that takes in images and image streams and turns them into um, streams that could go on an electrode array, streams of stimulation, that make sure that the key information of the scene is preserved or key information that the user needs for a particular task they're undertaking, um, given that loss of resolution and of, and of contrast. Now, are you getting into the brain primarily by simulating the retina or the optic nerve at the back of the eye? Yes. So we're part of a consortium called Bionic Vision Australia, and Bionic Vision Australia has developed retinal implants, and retinal implants, uh, these retinal implants are electrically stimulating devices, electrode arrays, that sit on the back of, uh, around the retina, either at the front of or at the back of the retina, and stimulate tissue directly there. So you've been, during the course of your talk, putting up some visual demonstrations of what a person with, who, are, who would otherwise be blind, what they would see, and there are arrays of just light or grey spots. Can you describe what that looks like if you were to have one of these implanted? So what people report seeing, they're called phosphenes, so they're a spot of light that um, is at the same position on the retina, and you have 
a, a number of these spots that are associated with electrodes on an electrode array that are implanted. What people report in patient trials seeing is that these these spots appear in a consistent position and that as stimulation parameters change they're able to see something that is brighter or more contrasting they're able to see separate levels of contrast within that and differentiate those levels of contrast and they're able to also bring together those and form an image in some way and an understanding of what's what's at the other end of a camera right but it's not a color vision in any sense is it no currently the kind of stimulation that you can do tends to stimulate a lot of cells at once and so it's not really possible to to separate out the color vision cells within that so no what they're seeing is is there may be some color perception but it's not really being controlled within what they're seeing right now there's some fairly serious computer processing going on at the front of this system so you could imagine stick whatever processing power you wanted out because it's outside the body so is the main limitation in how you stimulate the optic nerve yeah so increasingly for areas like computer vision um processing is less computer processing is less of a problem than it used to be it used to be very difficult to do these kind of image processing operations whereas now in research in computer vision we're able to undertake much more ambitious algorithms and ways of processing images and still be able to do them in in immediately on images so i'm not there are still limitations to that but less so than there are less so than there were and so a, a greater limitation in the in the work is really around what can be stimulated through the the, the electrodes at this point and the resolution and contrast so what are the priorities for a person who can't see so there are different priorities depending on or or Bionic Vision Australia has conducted focus groups and those focus groups the the people within it identified different priorities according somewhat to what type of retinal impairment they had so people who have have lost some vision but have some vision intact tend to have priorities around things like face recognition and communication people who have lost their vision entirely or have very very little residual vision now have more difficulties getting around their their everyday environment and um, walking out in the street etc and for them that kind of ability to move around is a barrier to their independent living and so that tends to be a, another priority that that group has that a group who have some intact vision who are able to move around with that vision are less less apt to. So we kind of see priorities around those areas of these sorts of acuity tasks like reading and face recognition and seeing facial expression and orientation and mobility. Now, now when we watch science fiction movies, the implants are always better than the real thing. How long do you think it might be if you want to really look way out there before we get a device that is at least comparable to natural vision or maybe even at some stage exceeds human vision in some way? Some way. Um, for, I mean, one of the intrinsic limitations that you have in blindness is that there is actual residual damage to retinal material. And so whatever stimulation you're able to do, there is still that residual damage to the system. And so that can't be overcome by necessarily um, stimulation. I would expect that over the 
the next 10 years or so we'll see retinal implants that are able to help people in their their tasks and assist people to live more independently via via the sorts of tasks they're concerned with i think the 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 gap currently to going to full vision or better than human vision I think is large and a difficult one and I think there's many steps to to recovering that. So a, a, long, a long way out is the short answer I think. Yes. <laughs> Alright well Associate Professor Nick Barnes it's a great privilege to talk to you and for all those people who suffer some sort of sensory loss uh, it's really important work. Thank you for your time. Okay thanks a lot. That was Associate Professor Nick Barnes talking to Rod Taylor. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XFM. And that was interesting research about the bionic eye and, and the developments that we're making progressing the research into the bionic eye. So we're about to just play a, a song for you by Spiderbait. But after the song, we're going to be chatting with Rod about Asperger's and what it is and, and what it means for someone that has Asperger's disease. It's, it's more There's more to it than just the social cues and the emotions involved but we'll be chatting with rod about that so this is spider bait um you're listening to fuzzy logic on two double xfn now we're going to be talking about asperger's disease um we're chatting with rod taylor about asperger's so rod let's start off by what is Asperger's, and sorry, I keep saying Asperger's disease, and that's just incorrect in itself. So, what is Asperger's? <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, Ian, because uh, yeah, it, it isn't as you say; it's, it's not a, not a disease. It's a fascinating condition, and what I think about it as being a a cluster of attributes that makes a person called Asperger's a little bit different. Now, the thing called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is u- released by the US medical authorities, uh, is a catalogue of all uh, medical conditions, right? And so they've put in the recent edition, they've put Asperger's as being in the spectrum of autism. Now, autism is a whole uh, range of, of, of things from being people being severely disabled, you know, where uh, they, they can barely function. Uh, did you ever watch a movie called Rain Man? I did, yes, yeah. Now, for, can, can you remember how the plot, the, the main character of that appears in the movie with, uh, is it, um, oh, what's his name? Scrawny little guy who was in The Graduate. Um, oh, I can't remember either, but yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> now, he was, you might call him an, an idiot savant. In probably we don't use that sort of language anymore. But really, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. But in that movie, he's obsessive. He's socially inept and he seems almost oblivious to other people's social or mental state. But his obsessiveness is is extreme to the point that I think at one point in the movie, is it uh, Tom Cruise? And oh, I've got to remember his name in a minute. Um, yeah, I've got to go back into my memory to, to get this one out, but I can't remember. It's been way too long. He, he drops a box of matches. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman is the Asperger character. Not Asperger, he's the autistic. Uh, and, and he looks down at the, at the little pile of matches and he says, 52 matches, 52 matches, 52 matches. And he's, he's counted those matches and he's sort of somehow got in touch with this ma- uh, mathematical ability that we all have but suppress. Uh, so that's the extreme end, right? And, and the Dustin Hoffman character, the autistic 
um, can can barely can barely function. He's in he's institutionalised, and in in the movie, Tom Cruise has to sort of take. He, he gets his brother dumped upon him, and he's got to go. Oh, at one point, they go to a casino, and remember, and and the Dustin Hoffman character uh, starts counting cards. And and he realizes Tom Cruise realizes he can make a bit of money out of this because because the the autistic character says oh five jacks five jacks five jacks and he goes oh shh, 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 you know mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> so uh, feel free, feel free to interrupt me Ian, if I'm uh, going too fast well I guess um, I mean for me coming from an angle of someone that. Just has a general common knowledge of Asperger's. You'd think that okay, a person with Asperger's might not be able to to take the social cues that I'm giving them, um, and, and things like that. So, what does it actually mean when someone has Asperger's? Ah, uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, that you, you, that is the probably the prime characteristic of an Asperger is uh, there's a thing called the theory of mind where a person can infer the mental state of another person. And in an Asperger, this is underdeveloped. So they're very poor at reading social cues at body language and so on. They uh, so they they often go on to like in, inappropriate behaviour. So the person that they might be talking to is just sort of like fallen asleep and is thoroughly bored, but they don't. So when you combine that with their what they have typically an obsessive nature about things, they really focus on a small on a narrow range of things. And so they will talk at length about the thing that interests them and then not notice that the other person has nodded off. But in, in history, a lot of the notable characters in history are uh, very high achievers and we, and we think, you know, post-diagnosing them, that many of them are Asperger. Hmm, Yeah. Because Asperger doesn't mean intelligent or not intelligent, that they run the same range of intelligence that more other people do. Uh, but a high-functioning Asperger, with given good intelligence, good uh, education and so on, can achieve amazing things. Hmm. So, with a lot of diseases, um, we don't really know what causes... Sorry, I keep saying disease. I'll stop saying syndrome. that. With a lot of conditions and <laughs> syndromes, we don't really know what causes them. Do we have any idea about Asperger's, where it comes from? Is it genetic? Is it something to do with, with the way that, um, you, you, that what happens when you're growing up or anything like that? Do that, we know? That's a really, really good question. And I think the answer is that it's unclear, but there is a genetic component. It's more common in boys than in girls. And by the way, I have to th- throw in at this point, the uh, you know, do you remember the thing about... Um, autism being caused by uh, vaccination yes yeah i do remember that because i've um i've done a lot of work in the area of vaccinations yes definitely well can you uh, um remind us what, what what that what that story is oh i can't remember the specific vaccination i think it was um the flu vaccine or something like that but basically that they were saying that there was a a, a chemical in in a vaccine that would cause autism um, and there was a couple of cases in America where they believed um, it was the case like it was because of the vaccine that the, the kids got autism. I don't believe it was proven or somehow the, the data was fudged that later on came in when these anti-vaccine groups are saying, no, you can't vac- vaccinate, you'll get autism. Um, but yeah, there was something wrong with the data there that they were able to prove yes. that it was incorrect. 
Yes, yes. It's a classic case of where a low-quality piece of research results in a scientific myth. And now there are people out there who pick up this, you know, and they combine it with conspiracy theories. So let's be absolutely clear here on fuzzy logic. There is no link, no link between vaccination and autism, right? That is thoroughly debunked. So we'll get that one out of the way. Yes, definitely, because vaccinations are very good in preventing or reducing the risk of disease in, in society. So definitely vaccinations are still very, very worthwhile. Yep. Now, there, there are other attributes of... Uh, you, there's a whole tick list of Asperger's, of characteristics of an Asperger. Uh, one is they have poor gross motor coordination. So I, I encountered one at work some years ago, and I met this bloke, and I, I know Asperger's quite well because I'm, I'm very close to one. And I met this guy, and he was making inappropriate statements. I don't mean not, like, suggestive or anything like that, but just socially inept uh, and I th- and I was thinking, you are totally a Spurger. And then I saw him walking down the corridor, and he's walking on the heels of his feet, and his arms sort of waving in a sort of ungainly fashion by his side. And yep, uh, definitely, definitely an a Spurger. Uh, so the w- the way I like to think of it is now, you, you could say it's a disability. Um, I'm not sure it is a disability. I don't like to think of it as a disability. I like to think of it as that we all have buckets of uh, different talents. Some of our buckets are half full, some are nearly empty. But with an Asperger, some buckets are overflowing. And that's their obsessive... Oh, and by the way, they have often have really good verbal skills. Uh, yep. The... Um, so some of the buckets are overflowing and, and some are almost empty. So uh, I guess a question that could be on everyone's lips right now is, is it treatable? Is it manageable? What does someone with Asperger's do to, to manage the condition? Yeah, good, 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 good question. Uh, it's, it's hard to say because the, um, Asperger's is a, is a spectrum. So there are people from mildly Asperger through to high-functioning Asperger, the people in, I mentioned in history who achieve a great deal. I think managing the condition, like um, making them aware of, of, of strategies, making them, helping them to, to learn how to cope. So in, in the person that I was referring to earlier, my, um, the person I know well, we we've coached them so that they are they learn the sort of cues and i heard really heard a really interesting comment by one they said that um Asperger's not very good at picking up body language right so their 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 theory of mind isn't isn't is defective in some way that they have a, like a mental catalog of facial expressions and then when they encounter a facial expression they haven't seen before they go oh i don't know what that one means mm. So they're like a stamp collector. They sort of have to put it in, and then they, they learn it by... But they're learning that from an intellectual basis, not from an emotional basis. Mm, yeah. So uh, so that's that's a sort of a, a condition... So it sounds like they're really going on physical expressions rather than maybe expressions that they might be hearing or seeing? It, they're not emoting in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, uh, to another person. Um, so, 
it's it's a it's a challenging position. Now, that, uh, what I talk about is a behavioural approaches to helping a person with Asperger's. But I think your question implies maybe are there drugs or pharmaceuticals or other sorts. Now, the reason we've brought up this topic today on Fuzzy Logic is because in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be interviewing a really interesting researcher named uh, Dr. Philip Endicott, who just did a, a public lecture out at the Academy of Science. And he's researching a technique called long-term coming, uh, complicated scientific words, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, and they're looking at stimulating parts of the brain that are associated with the spurges. And so it's pretty early days at the moment, and uh, you, you'll find a YouTube video where uh, Dr. Endicott uh, describes his research. But they're looking at uh, using the sort of brain stimulation, magnetic stimulation of the brain to uh, to help people with Asperger's. Yeah, transmania- transcranial magnetic stimulation. I just call it TMS because I've spoken to people that are working in this area as well. It's actually um, used quite a fair bit in epilepsy as well because they can actually use TMS to, to diagnose epilepsy. Um, or not diagnose, but sort of see what's happening in the brain of someone with epilepsy. And um, and it's quite an interesting area that now they're sort of moving into, can we also use it as a treatment? And what they essentially do is they put a cap on someone's head. It's kind of got all these electrodes that come out of it. If you've ever seen a clip of, of someone getting TMS um, and then what they can, oh, they get almost this, um, I don't even know what it looks like, but... Um, it looks a bit something like that would be from outer space, and they put it on top of someone's head, and it emits these these uh, rays or something like well, that. The magnetic, pol- yeah, the pulse. magnetic stimulation, yeah. Um, and then yeah, they can kind of use it to to stimulate those areas of the brain that might be responsible for various disorders. And actually, I've done a fair bit of um, of, of of articles and blogging in the area of where they're trying to use it for dementia as well and potentially stimulate the hippocampus which is responsible for memory um and that's also looking quite successful at the moment but once again it's one of those scenarios where the best research is actually in mice and rats and as you could probably be aware that there's a bit of a difference between um the skulls of mice compared to the skulls of um, i like to think my mind is a higher grade organ than the, than the mouse's yeah not, not so i think we've still got a little bit of work to go in this area but it'll be it'll be a fascinating topic so december 7th that's happening that isn't will, it that will yes that'll be a live phone interview and uh, he's a really interesting bloke so I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh to talking to him now um the day that i was lining this up with uh, dr endicott i was out on the street around canberra and uh, i met a big issue vendor do you know you ever read the big issue uh, uh, sometimes yeah. yeah yeah i highly recommend it especially because i've had articles in there and another one on the way but that's self-promotion aside <laughs> i got talking to this bloke he's really interesting and he said um he's interested in science and he's a fuzzy logic listener g'day i hope you're with us today uh he had psychotic episodes and uh, and i were talking about how i was going to do this interview and he said oh so uh will it treat schizophrenia and uh, according to dr endicott yes that's something they're going to be uh investigating but you mentioned um, wearing caps with all sorts of wires and stuff coming out of them. You know, remember the Clockwork Orange, the movie? 
No. Oh, oh, you've got to see the Clockwork Orange. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a classic 1970, um, uh, what's his face, who did the Space Odyssey. Anyway, um, when I was about eight, seven, eight years old, around about the times of the Apollo moon landing, as it happens, I fell over and bashed my head, and I subsequently had epileptic fits. I had a grand mile. And apparently, I don't remember any of this, but I woke up in the morning. Well, I didn't wake up. I woke up the family with my... I rolled out of bed and my feet were drumming on the floor and everything. It was all rather frightening for, for my family. I was a bit like classic rod stuff. I didn't know what the hell was going on. But I went into the clinic and I had what's called an electroencephalograph, mm-hmm. an EEG. Yes. Yeah. Right? So they're measuring, crudely speaking, brain waves or actually electrical activity on the surface of the skull. But this was a while ago, and the way that this device worked was they had little pins, and they actually pushed these little pins into into my skull and all these wires poking out of my head. Mm. And I still have a piece of paper with all these squiggly lines on it. So uh, that's one... <laughs> Fortunately, now they just use little pads, but not, not these pins into the, into the skull. Yeah. Sounds a bit invasive, but I suppose that technologies are improving these days where it's probably less invasive than that. <laughs> well, yes, for, fortunately. So Dr. Endicott mentions the EEG technique and uh, all sorts of fascinating um, implications. So measuring what you're thinking before you actually think it, like you're going to think you're going to move your hand before and there's a spike appears and it says you are about to move your hand and about a second later you move your hand. Uh, speaking of which, I'm now moving my hand over to the player here because we're going to play a track on Fuzzy Logic and this one is stuck in the middle with you. And when we come back, uh, let's talk and delve into another contentious area, the medicinal use of cannabis. Uh, touchy stuff here on Fuzzy Logic. Logic on to Double XFM. I'm Ian McDonald, and you're with Rod Taylor. So we're going to now talk about the use of medicinal marijuana or cannabis for medical use, obviously. And the ACT has actually just started, um, or just put a call out for public submissions into this area, and whether the ACT should have a, a medical trial in the in the use of of medical cannabis and the effects. So we thought we'd have a very short conversation on this, myself and Rod. It's it's a very uh, it's a contentious issue, like you said. And basically, what does the science say? Well, at the moment, the science says not a lot. It's all anecdotal, lots of uh, personal opinions. Um, so, yeah, really, in a way, we do need um, a scientific trial to, to tell us what the use of, of cannabis has on, on various diseases and disorders. Well, uh, Ian, the reason we came up with this topic today is because a couple of weeks ago our Ask Fuzzy column asked the question of uh, Dr Alex Wodak, who is the president of the Australian Drug Reform Foundation, or if I've got the title correct, uh, and I asked him in that question, uh, in that column, what what is medicinal cannabis right and because it, it, so it doesn't mean sitting down smoking a bong uh, <laughs> or, or what exactly is it and uh, it's actually a uh, an extra uh, a compound so in, in no smoking actually involved actually are 
scientific studies on this, by the way, and uh, I'm going to try and get Alex Wodak to do an interview with us at some stage to walk us through what what those things Yeah, no, that's something us. that I, I did leave out. So there are what I believe to be scientific studies in animals. Are there human studies out there? Yeah, yes, yes, there are. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, it, it is, it's a vexed issue, and, and it's vexed not because... Well, you, you put it really well, in because it should be... We should use science here. The science should give us the evidence that says, does it work, does it not work? You know, what are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the disadvantages? But this whole thing is so overloaded with the moral baggage of the war on drugs... And that that has completely um, thrown askew the whole public debate on the use of medical marijuana. Um, so let's just quickly talk about some of the treatments for what it's good for. Now, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, and we'll get Dr. Wodak to explain it a bit more, but things like nausea and, and pain relief, I believe. And uh, so people who are in stage chemotherapy, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, it's associated with nausea. So it actually is, is, is very therapeutic for those sort of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he's talking about using the, a mix of things. It's not just the active ingredients, but it's, it's a blend of things from the, the cannabis. So, again, we'll have to find out a bit more about what that actually means. But the interesting thing that happened after uh, we ran that column that I got a spam email. Clearly it was a targeted spam, and it was from a company flogging cannabis oil. And uh, I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And then the range of things it claims to treat depression, schizophrenia, alcoholism, and I'm thinking my bullshit detector is going deep. And then it said, and much, you know, at this point I'm sort of mildly bemused. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, sure thing. And then it says use on infants and and a whole range of people. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is bunk. So, uh, and and I forwarded this to Dr. Wade. I said, what do you think of that? And he went, you know, really, this is a different abuse of, of, of a topic where, you know, the science, again, has been pushed aside yep yeah so i mean i've seen stories out there as well some of our um our mainstream media um on tv run stories about the use of of cannabis in fact just recently there was something on um on you know on, on sunday night on um primetime television about the the use of cannabis in kids and how it was um useful for pain relief like you were saying but you know where we come from a science background we don't take the sample size of one as as strict evidence and we're we're always happy to listen to anecdotes and listen to people's personal opinions but you can't say that something that works in one person is going to work for everyone and it really shouts out the need for okay well let's trial this in a scientific way in a way that will give us some answers and so it'll be really interesting to see what happens with this uh inquiry that's currently out within the act your 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 point is well made uh, ian and in fact there is a subliminal message in the ask fuzzy columns which uh, um i don't make it obvious but uh the, the underlying theme of the ask fuzzy well there's two one is that science is all around us and it, you know it's just inherently interesting stuff but the other is that we rely on the scientific method 
and the importance of evidence is uh, is huge you can't over well you could overstate it but uh, without evidence so an example is so some safety expert i'm doing the rabbit ears thing <laughs> uh put all these safety signs around of oh, the streets of canberra don't do this don't do that and i'm thinking what evidence is there that that has actually changed driver behavior or does it have perhaps have an adverse effect by, by, by making people uh more dependent on authority yeah but you mentioned anecdotes now i remember having a conversation with a person who i'd consider highly educated very intelligent and we talked about homeopathy. Oh, uh, no, Ian's face is just lit up there. Uh, homeopathy, right? And she described how her son had a persistent cold of some sort, that he wouldn't get better, that he tried him conventional medicine, and then they put him on a homeopathic remedy, inverted commas again, and he got better. Yep. <laughs> what does it actually mean? Well, the, what's the difference between correlation and causation yeah and i guess sort of the sad thing that's kind of about this is that when someone does have maybe a a disease that's life-threatening or or something that's you know really painful that they are going to try anything and if one person comes up to them and they're essentially marketing a product to them and they're a salesperson Mm. you're probably going to try it um but you know it's 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 all over our our TVs over the radio and things like that. Celebrities sell products. It's not necessarily scientists that sells products, and it's it's people's um, opinions and and being able to market something in a way. So that's that's the scary part of it, isn't it? That yeah, you know that we're buying things based on on someone that we you know potentially look up to or or respect, and they're more of the, more than likely to be celebrities rather than scientists and taking their word for it rather than um than a scientist well that 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 Ian, is a really complicated conversation we we could we could go into some depth about this one because uh when i studied economics at uh university we talked about a thing called the economic man of course it was man but um economic that we make decisions based on economic benefit and that is a fundamental assumption in economics and I think what you're in danger of alluding to there is scientific man or woman, and, and that we should base things based, uh, you know, on a, on a rational uh, foundation of some sort, right? But we humans aren't particularly rational. We make all <laughs> sorts of funny decisions based on feeling, like you mentioned, celebrities and so on. Uh, so a lot of science is about uh, taming that irrational, that inherent irrationality. Oh, by the way, there's a fascinating book called uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. I highly recommend it. It's about all the sort of bizarre behaviours that we exhibit in our economic choices. Yeah, and we're all guilty of it. I would buy something because a celebrity tells me to. <laughs> yeah, um, I might have done it once myself. <laughs> But uh, we, we, do, we do have to tame our uh, irrational impulses. And, uh, so that's, that's an underlying message of, of the Ask Fuzzy column is really... Uh, because an example was do we pour the milk or the tea first, right, into a cuppa? And on the surface you just go, well, who gives a shit? I mean, really, milk or tea, you know, like how trivial can you get? But the real message, and, and you have to get to the end of the column to find out, 
you can't tell the difference. Even so-called experts don't know the difference between milk or tea first. And can we still read that column? Where would we be able uh, to find it? Um, they stay online on the various Fairfax sites for a while, but they seem to cycle them through. So uh, I could, I might, I might, I, I do own copyright on these things, or the ones I write, because I, I actually don't get paid. <laughs> I'm poor, I don't get paid. But I own the copyright, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I might well post that up where you can get to. We have a Facebook on Fuzzy Logic, and we podcast through Pod uh, Fuzzy Logic on Two Double X Stop podbean.com don't forget uh, we've got our radiothon subscribe make donations uh, participate we, are, we, we love hearing from you here on 2XX and Fuzzy Logic and speaking of which we'll close out now with uh, another Ask Fuzzy column which is today snails you like gardens Ian? yeah I have uh, too many snails in my garden at the moment well, especially I, after the rain uh, well that's it my, my uh, correspondent asked me the question uh, Evelyn she uh, likes to send me questions and she said where do snails go when it's not raining <laughs> <laughs> and I quite like that because like you well, we all know they sit under pots and everything but uh, my friend who is the naturalist at the Australian Museum wrote us a, uh, a really interesting little uh, answer to that one and uh, he talked about um, the fact that they come from England and that yes they are the ones you eat in a restaurant and they built a uh, a little membrane uh, a, a mucous membrane across their shell to keep them dry and then when the rain comes out they eat the membrane uh, oh. get, a, get a little tasty snack and then they go out in search of your cabbages yes yeah. <laughs> alright oh, lots of fun uh, you've been listening to me uh, Rod and Ian today on Fuzzy Logic uh, enjoyed your company. Uh, enjoy the rest of today. Catch you later. <laughs>